Hello, welcome. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the pastor here. I'm so glad you're at Encounter Church. Today, we're kicking off um, a continuation of a series that we kicked off a few weeks ago called The Land of Ur. And uh, if you got that video, you got The Land of Ur. That uh, comparison and the tendency to compare and to one-up each other is so insidious, it's so like hard to overcome, that even when you're trying to be humble and confess it, you're still trying to one-up someone. Have you ever been around someone who, when you're just talking about your struggles, they're so desperate to compete that they talk about their struggles too. Oh, you, oh, you got sick? Well, I was in the hospital. Oh, oh you, you lost your job? Yeah, my business went under and I was bankrupt. And it's just like this idea that we, by nature, we like to compete with others. But comparison is a trap. Comparison ends up enslaving us. And kind of over the last two weeks, what we've unpacked is that comparison kind of leads to two different traps. One is just this resigning, this kind of surrender of, I look at everyone else's news feeds, I see everyone else's social medias, and I will never be blank. I'll never be smart enough, I'll never be pretty enough, I will never be, you know, whatever. This idea that we all want a little bit more er in our life, and they've got the er that I want. I wish I was prettier, I wish I was smarter, I wish my spouse was fill in the blank, but don't do it right now. Um, I wish my kids were a little bit more er, and what happens is, One path is resignation of I'll never have it, and the other is this relentless pushing, driving of I'm going to get it. But the trap in I'm going to get it is that you're never satisfied with it. And when you get it, you want more of it. And you want more of it. And what we talked about last week is that this pursuit of Ur is not something that just happens by occasion or every once in a while. But it is actually, if we're not careful, an operating system in life. It is the way we see the world. If we're driven by a competitive nature of this constant comparison, then we see people as competitors in a race. And that last week we said the way that you counteract comparison is you counteract it through community. Where you don't see life as a race, you see life as a journey. And if it's a journey, then people are your companions, not your competitors. And that literally community can save your life. Because we all have weak moments. We all have moments where we stumble or when we fall or we make foolish decisions. And community is the thing. It's the guardrails. It's the safety net that protects us when we make stupid decisions. But today what I want to do is is shift gears a little bit and begin to talk about some practical disciplines and some, some skills and some exercises and some things that you and I can do Um, to start to push back even harder. Because right now, all we've done is talk about comparison and, okay, how do you really kind of, what is is the pushback of comparison? How do you counteract it? But today, I want to talk about replacing comparison completely. Actually, exchanging comparison for something more. Because I think we're all looking for something more. And in that looking for something more, we tend to be derailed in the process. But there is one more that's actually worth looking for. There's one more that is actually worth spending our life and and working diligently to attain, and that's contentment. And contentment is, I think, one of the most attractive, one of the most desirable things that we can have as humans, but it's also the rarest. We live in a culture, as our commercials are going to start to play out, as our billboards remind us every day we drive, that we are lacking something, that we need something else. 
If you've got a great iPhone, wait a year. It'll be obsolete. There'll be a new one out. Right? I mean, we live in a cycle and in a culture where we're constantly being reminded that what we have is not enough. There's something better. And yet contentment is this vaccination against comparison. It's the one more worth looking for. When I think about contentment, I picture, because I guess I have a parent of a toddler, I picture walking through Toys R Us with a child who is not screaming, with a parent who is not screaming, with a kid who's not grabbing and reaching and screaming, I need, I need that, I need that. Like Contentment to me is that promised land of going into Toys R Us without either one of us screaming at one another. Or for me, that contentment idea is right after a Thanksgiving meal, getting on the couch and watching football for the rest of the day, not having to use a single brain cell, but just the cheer for whatever happens in front of me. Or scream if I need to scream to let some things out. Right? I mean, contentment is that thing that we all want, but most of us never attain it. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to dive into a passage from, I think, one of the strongest teachings on contentment, but also one of the strongest teachers on contentment ever. This guy's credentials, his background, his knowledge, I mean, he uh, would have been the equivalent of not one Ivy League graduation, but multiple Ivy League graduations. He's, he was one of the sharpest um, minds of his day and is considered by Jewish scholars to be one of the sharpest thinkers ever. He was a trilingual, brilliant thinker. He was so driven, so ambitious, so determined that he would literally kill his opponents to stop and to snuff out anything that might try to get in his way. And yet this guy has written some of the best words ever on contentment. If you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Philippians 4. If you don't, um, Rachel referenced earlier the Encounter Church app. And it's a wonderful app. Um, it's free to download. You can go to EncounterChurch.com backslash app, and it will actually, on your smart device, it will redirect you to your store. So whether you're Android or um, Apple. But what's great about the app is we go ahead and preload everything you're going to need. So if you don't have a Bible, you can um, fire the app and click on Bible, and it'll pop right up already loaded on Philippians 4, verse 11. Or if you're a note taker or you're one of those people like me, who needs to write down things to be able to remember them, there is a sermon notes section that already has the passage loaded in and has the notes there for you. Because I think what we're going to talk about today has the potential to change your life. Because contentment is the one more worth looking for. So in Philippians 4, to kind of set the backdrop, set the stage, because I think this is important to lend credibility to who's writing this, Paul is writing this letter to a church in Philippi. And that's why it's called the letter to the Philippians, because they were the Philippian people. And Paul had helped to start this church in Philippi. And Paul um, really cared about this church. They had a special relationship. Um, things had, had gone incredibly well there. And there um, so Paul finds himself in the pursuit of trying to spread Christianity. He is now under arrest. And he's sitting in a prison. He's shackled. Barely any light. In the first century prison system, there wasn't the amenities that we would find in prison today. Um, you were not just, you didn't just get shackled into chains into a jail cell and people would bring you food, people would bathe you, people would make you know, toiletry access available. In first century um, Roman Empire justice system, 
the prisoner was responsible for acquiring his own food, which is a really difficult thing when you're shackled to a wall because, first of all, eating by itself is difficult enough with the chains, but to top it off, you don't have the ability to run to Shaw's or to Stop and Shop or to Wegmans. You're dependent on the kindness of stranger or your friends and family who happen to live in the area bringing you food. So Paul is writing this letter, shackled, chained, starving, dirty, and every time the door opens, he flashes through his mind, this is the moment I die. Because he's in this prison, there's not a great justice cause in this system, and so he knows that at any point he could be taken and beheaded, hung from the gallows, or just crucified on a cross. And then in the midst of that, Paul writes this letter in um, verse 11. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. And his response to them is that they, this Philippian church has sent him some resources and some supplies. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. He's just said thank you. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to have need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. When you get the backdrop of that passage, this, this guy is writing these words as his arm and his hands are bound by chains. As his stomach is now filled for the first time in perhaps weeks with food. He's dirty. He's exhausted. And he writes these words, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. And I'm telling you, this is a guy I want to learn contentment from. Because most of my struggles with contentment is I don't have the iPhone 6S. I'm stuck with the iPhone 6. Right? Or I drive a 2003, not a 2015. Like, that's my struggle with contentment. Or I wish it was a little bit healthier. I mean, like, this is a guy who's in prison who's like, I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. That's the guy I want to learn from. That's the guy I want to sit down with and say, okay, teach me how to be content. And he says, I want to give you that lesson. And in these three verses, he unpacks for us what is essentially the college of contentment. But he says, all right, I want to put on class today. And if you're willing to walk through it, then we can set up the college of contentment. And I think there are three different levels. Like college has a 101, the 201, and the 301. But I think there's this similar kind of pattern. There's a 101, a 201, and a 301 that we see Paul unpack over the course of these three verses. 101 is foundation. I think there is, there's got to be a basic foundation to understanding contentment. That's why I say contentment is not the lack of ambition. This is a guy who's so ambitious to spread Christianity that, first of all, he tried to stop Christianity, which meant he killed them all. And now he's so ambitious to spread Christianity, he's trying to win them all. And now he's been arrested because he's so successful at it. Because he's trying to take this idea of who Jesus is into literally every corner of the world. That now he's shackled and his drive and his ambition is still present. And he says, all right, what can I do? Well, I can write a letter. Let me write a letter. 
I mean, that's ambition. It's not apathy. It's not sitting and sulking. Oh, I'm stuck in prison. I can't do anything. Oh, well, poor, pitiful me. No, he's like, all right, I can write a letter. I'll do that. So it's not complacency. It's not apathy. It's not comfort. It's so much more than that. And Paul says the first thing you need to understand is it's a foundational thing, right? He uses these words that it's so simple we can walk over it. But he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. In verse 12, he says, for I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I think here's the first lesson when it comes to the foundation. Contentment 101 is understanding the difference between needs and wants, right? Because so many of the frustrations, so many of the issues of comparison that creep into our life are in those areas where we confuse the two. It's, it's natural, right? To Whether it's you're seeing a buddy's new grill, and you're like, man, or you see a car, or you're watching something on television, and you say, I need that, right? It's just this tendency to confuse needs and wants. Needs are actually, it's a pretty short list. Now, you may disagree with how many is on that short list, but it's a short list. It's like food, water, shelter, clothing, right? I mean, there's not too much wrapped up in that needs list. That as humans, we've been surviving for thousands and thousands and thousands of years in some of the most diverse and extreme climates all over planet Earth. And it's been because we just need a few needs met. But what happens is we live in a culture of plenty. We live in a climate of constant advertisement whose people's jobs when they wake up, whose like literally careers are built on creating a sense of need around a want. Oh, well, you, you need the next device, or you need that bigger house, or you need that faster car, or you need this new outfit. I mean, their whole job is built on that. And somewhere along the, the way of needs and wants, while we intellectually understand there's a difference, we start to blend them together. It re- kind of reminds me of the cemetery gravestone in Egypt where it says over the wife, uh, she died for want of things. And her husband's gravestone right beside her says, he died tried to giving, tried, he died tried to giving them to her. Right? This idea that like we can get so wrapped up in life, we can get so driven in the pursuit of things that we end up having life stolen from us. But there's only a few things we actually need. And contentment is focused, contentment is centered on our needs, not our wants. The, content, the needs are the cake. The wants are just the icing. You can starve and die out just eating icing because your body starts to lack certain nutritional things it needs. Right? I mean, and so Paul's like, look, you've got to understand there are some things in life that you need and there's some things in life that you just want. But I think what's happening underneath this, and I think this is the key thing because the millennials are the first generation that, that really embodies this in, in the extreme level. That's why they've been called the entitlement generation. You see, underneath needs and wants, when you, when you start to middle, mix them and merge them and, and confuse them, is you start to actually confuse this issue of expectations. See, expectations are critical. Uh, there's been a lot of business articles I, I read a ton, and one of the things that's been interesting is as the millennials or Generation Y, um, whatever you kind of would want to sociologically classify them as, as they're coming of age and starting to work, 
uh, there's a lot of commentary within upper management training about how to manage them. Because they want the corner office, they want the job title, they want the salary that their parents have right now. And they go into these jobs, they go into these levels, they, with this unrealistic expectation that I deserve the office. I deserve the applause, I deserve the influence and the responsibility that the upper management have, the, the older generations have, because they, they've been told that their entire life. They've been told they're special, they've been told, and they are, but special is a, a weird thing when everyone's special, right? And, and that has kind of crept in, and what happens is they set these unrealistic expectations. If you've ever gotten married, you've experienced unrealistic expectations coming to the forefront, haven't you? Where you have this picture of what a perfect marriage looks like, and then you marry an imperfect person. And you realize that all these things you've never, ever thought you would not get, you start not getting them. You mean there's not flowers every day? There's not a love song? There's, there's hard days? I mean, you hear people say, why does life have to be this hard? I think that's an unrealistic expectation. I don't know about you, but I've traveled around the world. Life's hard. But when you walk into life, when you step into those worlds and you think life should be easy, you have this unrealistic expectation. And unrealistic expectations are at the heart of most of our frustrations and disappointments in life. I would argue that the millennial who walks in, who understands, you know what, this is probably a long career road. I'm going to have to earn influence, earn my salary, earn fill-in-the-blank. They would probably be happier on their job day one versus the millennial who comes in who believes they deserve the corner office. Right? And it's not just millennials. They learned it from the older generation. It's a human struggle. And Paul's saying, look, foundational to getting this thing, 101 is understanding that needs and wants are two separate things, and you can't operate in life with an expectation for this. Healthy expectation is around your needs being met. That's 101. And I think we have an opportunity to be able to, to foster that. Even in our own lives. This week, I was sitting in a meeting, and I grabbed M&Ms, and I'm trying to, to get a little healthier. I'm trying to exercise and lose weight. And I had a pack of M&Ms because I needed them because they were peanut M&Ms. And I'm pretty sure that's essential for life. And while I'm sitting there um, thinking, and it's like I can't even listen to the guy speaking because the M&Ms are like, eat me. <laughs> and I'm just like, man, I need you, don't I? Uh, you know, I probably, I, I need energy, and you've packed with protein and sugary goodness. And, and I'm sitting there, and I'm having this internal conversation. And then the break happens, and I said, I'm going to make a choice. And I walk back over, and I put those M&Ms back in a snack container. And I'm like, I don't need those. I think sometimes it's just as simple as reminding ourselves the difference between a need and a want. And being okay with what the difference is. I think for others, maybe um, if you're a parent going into this Christmas season, this is a great time to foster this understanding of needs and wants and expectations. If you're like me and our family, you probably hear, oh, I want that, I want that, because it's getting close now, right? And every commercial, every item in Toys R Us, all these, oh, I want that, I want that, I want that. It's like, all right, we need to start writing this stuff down, because I can't remember all the things you want. And maybe in a couple of weeks, you sit down with them, or maybe in a week, and you say, hey, here are all the things you've told me in the last few weeks that you want. Or here's the things that you wrote down for your Christmas wish list. 
we, I want to teach you something, sweetie or slugger or whatever your nickname is, right? There's something called a budget. All these things cost money. And this costs a lot of money. This costs a lot of money. This costs a whole lot of money. This is cheap. This is cheap. This is cheap. This is cheap. Now, we're only going to spend so much money. Which of these items are the ones that you really want the most? Now, understand, if you pick an item that costs a lot, the cheaper items or the more expensive items, you're probably not going to get them all. But I'm telling you, something. even if you have the financial means to fulfill their wish list, there is something profoundly healthy that happens in a human soul when they realize expectations, realistic expectations, are placed inside of them. And they get that it's a need and there's a want, and these are want items. And on Christmas morning when they wake up and they see, because they've had a kind of a place in helping to decide what should be on that want list, that they're not disappointed because they had realistic expectations, understanding I can't get all of this. So I'm choosing the things that I think are the most important of my wants. But it's not just the foundational thing. I think there's also this idea of focus, right? This 201 level that Paul begins to unpack. And, and focus is, is a little interesting because he actually, one of the things that's subtle in his writing is he's not pointing out what the Philippians have. He's not pointing out what the other prisoners have. He just seems to be very okay with where he is and what he has. You see, 101 is foundation, understanding the needs and wants and expectations. But number 201 is getting that there is a choice I make, right? He says, I have learned. This is not natural. This is a discipline that he has engaged. The actual, like in the, the letter, he writes this in Greek. The, the words he uses in this portion really are, are not just, I was watching Discovery Channel and I learned that you know, male penguins will actually propose to female penguins with a rock. Like, that's not what he's saying when he says, I've learned. What he's saying is this weightier word that refers to this years and decades of experiential learning. He's like, I have fought through this. I have gotten this lesson deep inside of me. And I think the 201 level is when we start to focus on what we have, not what others have, not what we don't have, Paul doesn't focus on the other freedoms that other prisoners have. He doesn't focus on how much food they're getting. He's focused on his own circumstances. And here's how I know that. Instead of pitying, he writes a letter to people. He's like, well, what can I do? Well, I can write a letter. I'm going to do that. He focuses on what's in front of him. And this is a learned choice because our tendency is to see grass is greener on the other side. Right? We, we notice other people's families. We notice other people's vacations. We see other people's cars. Right? Um, sometimes I travel, and in the midst of traveling, I, I will get uh, kind of upgraded with uh, rental cars. And two weeks ago, I mean, I'm, I'm renting what should have been a, a, a hamster-driven car and just something to kind of get me through. And I walk up to the, to the counter, and they say, congratulations, we've upgraded you. And I'm like, sweet, I'm going to get like a cool ride with like a V6, not a V2. And, um, and I get in, and it's an Infiniti QX80, 2015. And it's like, I get in the car, and it's like, hello, Mr. Causey. And it's like the seat kind of forms around me. Radar kicks in on this thing. I, I, like at one point, I'm giddy, and I'm like, hee, 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 because the car literally has radar. 
I'm driving down the road, and if a car slams on brakes in front of me, the car automatically slows down. Like, I'm not touching. It is almost driving itself. And I, I'm by myself, and I'm like, did you just say that? I mean, this thing is blinking lights, telling me when there's cars in my blind spot. And then I get back in my 2003 Buick that does not have radar. It's got a cassette, like a cassette tape deck. There's no blinking lights or sensors. Nothing fancy. It, it seems bothered that I cranked it up. The QX was like, thank you, Mr. Causey. We've been waiting on you. Right? But see, what happens is when I got back in my Buick, all I could see was all the things that my Buick can't do. But I think foundation, building 201 to focus, is I focus on what I have a car. You know, and in the grand scheme of the global world and people, like, my car works. And it gets me from point A to point B. And and I had to get back in my Buick and apologize. But here's the thing. The grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greener wherever you water it. And when we focus on what we have, not what we don't have, we're watering the grass in front of us. And our plot gets a whole lot better when we're focused on it. When we're watering it and not noticing what everyone else has. I think where you get this very practically is... It's, it's almost so simple, it's not worth saying, but it is, because we live in a culture that doesn't do this. It's the words, thank you. Thank you is a very simple phrase, but how often do you hear thank you? It's real. When's the last time you've gotten a thank you card? Say, so I just want to thank you for filling the blank. The, the, just the act of saying thank you does something to the soul. Look, even... One of the things I love about this church is that we have people on the full range of spectrum spiritually. And there's some people who are skeptics and kind of trying to figure this thing out or maybe kind of seeking, get some questions about faith or, or just sold out completely. It's like I'm a commi- com- completely committed Christian. But even if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you just to say thank you when you sit down at the table with a meal. Like maybe you can't thank God because you're not sure He exists. But like, I don't know, if, if you work for um, Harvard Pilgrim or if you, you work for a car dealership or if you work in Legacy Place at some store, you can at least kind of mutter in your breath, thank you, Uniqlo, right? Because without you, I couldn't eat this today. Like, thank somebody. Because it does something to your soul. It's a reminder that, you know what, I didn't do this thing on my own. None of us got here by ourselves. Right? And while our hard work, maybe our education, maybe our passions, maybe our, our, like our experience has gotten us to where we are, but it didn't get us started. Someone else has helped pave the way for our success. And it does us so, so good to just say thank you to them or to ourselves to be reminded of it. Or we do this with our daughter every night because straight up, like I'll be honest, this whole entitlement thing greats against my soul. I grew up really poor. I had a great, phenomenal mom who really kind of instilled realistic expectations, and life reinforced those realistic expectations. But um, we kind of determined, Jenny and I were like, we are not going to raise a spoiled brat. Like, we're going to raise a child who says thank you, who understands that, like, her expectations in life, there is nothing that's going to be given to her. And she can't wait around for those things to happen. Because it doesn't. 
And so one of the things that we do every night as a family is as we've tucked her in, we read a little Bible story, we pray. And one of the things that we do in our prayer, it's really simple, it's really short, there's nothing like profound about it, but we just say, hey, um, each, each one of us is going to thank God for something today. Just one thing. And let's just say thank you, because that was a really cool thing that he, like, we didn't deserve this. Like, this is just something that he's given to us, and we want to thank him for his, like, just how good he is and how generous he is. And, and so there are days where sometimes it's just like, God, thank you for my stuffed animals. And that's me, you know. Or it's just like Ella saying, God, thank you for, um, thank you for my friend. Thank you, thank you for church. Thank you for mommy and daddy. Thank you for macaroni and cheese. I mean, sometimes it gets really random. But what it does is it, what I noticed is as she gets older, we, we say just one or two, and it turns into more. Because when you foster gratitude, you start to think and to be grateful for far more than just the one thing in front of you. And it's something that I do. I thank God for my wife. I thank God for our space and our place. I thank God for my Buick. I thank God for my job. I thank God for you. And it, what it does is every day I do that, it gives me perspective. Because sometimes in the midst of a crazy household or crazy kids or an overwhelming job, it's, it's easy to lose perspective, isn't it? But just saying, God, thank you every day helps to recalibrate. But then Paul gets into, I think, the deepest lesson. And this is how we're going to end. Um, Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content. So 101 and 201, no matter where you are on uh, kind of a belief spectrum, no matter like what you have understanding-wise about the Bible, whether or not you even buy into that, everything up to this point has been um, pretty much universally applied. But Paul says there is another level. In fact, this, the, the wording he, he kind of pivots to is the word we, we get our word for mystery. He says, I have learned the secret. Like the mystery, this, this idea of initiation into a club that has knowledge that no one else does. So if you were in college and you joined a fraternity, you know, there's a certain point in the process where you go through the initiation. And that inside of the initiation, you learn the secret handshake. And what makes that secret handshake special is not the handshake. It's that other people don't know it. Right? It's, it, it goes back to your toddler years where you were trying not to play with some other friend and you're like, what's the secret password? I mean, it's really just that in adult form. But Paul uses this idea of this initiation, this secret, to get to your 301 level. And the 301 level is faith. And he says this idea of faith goes beyond just the character of trusting in the character of God. That's essential to the foundation of 301 is trusting God's character to provide for your needs. And that's, that's the core. But Paul's, Paul's pointing, because Jesus had already pointed that out in Matthew 6, and Hebrews 13, 5 had already said, um, you know what, like, be content with what you have because God has already promised to meet your needs and never leave you or forsake you. Paul's saying there's something deeper. This mystery that I'm talking about is the ability to do all this. What's this? The plenty, the want, the good times, the bad times, the struggles, the challenges, he's like, all of this through Christ's strength in me. He's like, that's the mystery. And, and I get that for many of us, like, you, maybe you've heard that, maybe you've read that, or maybe you've never heard that before, and it sounds, it's like, ooh, like, what is that? Christ's strength in me. Like, that doesn't make any sense. 
I read something like that, and I'm like, you got to give me handles, because maybe that looks good on a coffee cup, or maybe that looks good when Christians say that to one another, like, oh man, you can do all things through Christ. But like, what does that look like in life? And Paul, who's referenced this numerous times in other letters, says that we acquire this through faith. He actually, in his, in his original writings, in the Greek, it says, who gives me strength. The image is, is very different. It's not um, like God saying, you can do it, go get them. Like, God's not doing the pep talk. He's not doing the rally rally. Like, woo, 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 let's all get fired up and emotions high and go run out. He's actually saying, no, no, it's, it's more like this, that, you know, there's this idea that there is incredible power that you and I have access to. But none of us are terrified of this right now. Right? I can do this. I'm not concerned about losing an arm. And the reason why is because it's not connected. See, the word he uses is something akin to being plugged in or the power source coming externally from the outside. This doesn't have power in its own. This blade looks sharp and it looks frightening, but this isn't going to take my head off. This won't break through walls, but this thing plugged in can cut through anything. And he says, look, Christ's strength, we plug into that. That, you know what, you can't, but he can through you. And the way that you and I plug into this, the way that you and I connect to this is through faith. It's, it's through trusting him. And let me kind of give you a, a kind of a 30-second story. There was a guy named Blondini who was a famous tightrope walker, right? And this was in a day and age where there was no television, so people who were willing to walk across a small rope really high up was entertainment, all right? And, and so Blondini would do this deal, and people would come from all around to see him, and he was really, really famous for doing it in Niagara Falls. Blondini was so gifted, he would actually, at one point in his show, he would bring out an oven, and he would cook an omelet on the tightrope, then he would recline on a chair and eat the omelet on a table that he was also balancing. He was incredible, right? And Blondini finishes up his show. He goes back to the side, and he's like, who believes that I can take a wheelbarrow and push it all the way to the other side and back? And they're like, we believe, Blondini. You're awesome, omelet. And, and he's like, who believes I can put a man in the wheelbarrow and push him all the way and back? Look, oh, you're the man, Blondini. And then he says, who wants to volunteer? Right? Because Blondini in one question demonstrated what faith really is. Faith is not sideline cheering. Faith is stepping in to the wheelbarrow and trusting that the one who's pushing it has got it. That's faith. That's a whole different level. And the thing about faith is when you step into that wheelbarrow, you're putting your trust in something and someone who you believe has got it under control. And what this looks like, very practically, I've shared with you my time in Egypt. And let me just give you the rest of the story, and then we're going to respond. But um, the part about preaching in Egypt in the midst of the persecution that broke out and 26 Christians died um, was that it really was overwhelming to me. I was not sleeping. I went about four or five nights where I barely had any sleep, and I was mentally, emotionally, physically starting to unravel. I'm not a big crier, but I would just weep for no reason. I mean, I, I was on the verge of insanity. 
And it was the scariest thing I'd ever experienced. Between being sleep-deprived, um, between the, the pressure of walking past an armed guard every single time that I walked into that church to preach, knowing that my translator had said to me, don't get me killed, knowing that if someone responded to what I said, it could mean that they would die or that their family could be arrested or that I could be injured or hurt or deported. Like, I felt that weight every time I walked into that church by the guy holding the AK-47 who was listening to every word I said. And I would get into the the church service, and there were people, and they were singing, and I would sit in the back, and I was so emotionally spent. I was so, like, exhausted. My wife was eight months pregnant. Our first child, eight months pregnant on the other side of the planet. And I would get, the guy would give me the signal saying, all right, you're about to get up. And I would say, Jesus, I don't have it in me to speak to a human being. You've got to give me strength. You've got to give me energy. And I would walk up to the stage. I would step up to this like big lectern or pulpit or whatever that honking borderline bulletproof thing was. And I would kind of place my hands on it. I would look at the people and I would see their exhaustion. I would see their fear. And before I'd open my mouth, I would just simply, I, I can't do this. But you can through me. You've said that to me. And then I would open up my eyes and I'd start teaching. And energy would flood into me. Power would flood into me. Courage and conviction that they needed that I didn't have, but he had through me to give them. And people who would go from being discouraged to lifting their head up with hope and I would have this, this confidence and conviction that I didn't care that there was a man outside with a gun who could kill them or kill me. I was speaking the very words, the very hope that Jesus provides. I had power because I was connected to something greater. And then when I'd finish the message and I would say amen, boom, he would leave me. I would go back to the hotel, discouraged, broken. I'd come back the next day. And I'd do it all over again. And when I read, I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. I'm reminded of the moments in my life where I had no strength. But I said, I can't, but you can through me. And Jesus, can you just do this in me, through me for the next 30 minutes? Because I just need 30 minutes. Or can you do this in and through me? Because I'm not sure my marriage is going to make it, but I'm not going to give up. Can you just, can you do this through me tonight? So that when she complains or when he lashes out, I respond with grace. Can you just do this in me and through me? And he did. And he does. See, here's the thing. We all are in the college of contentment. Some of us are just signing up class. Some of us are saying, you know what? I need to learn 101. I need to take that next level to 201. But we're all in some class in this college. And I would encourage you, let today be the day that you decide to go up to the next level. To take the next step. Because we're all looking for more. But this is the one more worth looking for. 